Hi, this is Mo. And this is Sarah, and you're listening to the podcast Bird Shit. We started this podcast to share our love of birding with other enthusiastic birders in the world. Hey folks, welcome to episode two. This is Mo and Sarah. We are really excited you guys decided to sit through another episode for some reason. Uh, We are gearing up for an awesome trip to Point Pelee National Park in Canada this upcoming weekend for Memorial Day weekend. And as part of that, we thought we'd bring you guys some nice travel tips. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about birding while you're on vacation, whether you're going there specifically to go birding like we're doing for Point Pelee, or you're looking to bring birding into a vacation that you might be taking for some other reason. So with that in mind, uh, Sarah, you recently came back from a big trip. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? I um, just got back from Japan like earlier this week. I am still insanely jet lagged. Are you grocery shopping at 3 a.m. again? No, thank God. No, but I did sleep, I think, for like 20 hours one day. My body just shut down. I also had like an eight-hour layover in LAX, which was like a terrible experience. And I like mm-hmm. slept next to a garbage can for like half a day. That's a really mean thing to say to Jake. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, no, I was sorry. No, no, we were both pieces of garbage. Oh my god, we were so gross. But um, yeah, it was a great trip. Uh, we spent time in Tokyo, Osaka, Nagano, and Kanazawa um, with a majority of our trip in the very, very big city, biggest city in the world of Tokyo. And, you know, I just can't stop birding. Every time we went somewhere, I was insanely excited about seeing a tiny bird on the ground. Like, it was so much fun. Um, and Jake actually really got into it. So um, I'd like to start this with one of the most common birds that we saw that's a super cool bird. It is the Corvus macrohydrocos. Macrohydrocos. Rhinocos? Oh my god. Okay. It's a rhinoceros crow? It's a Corvus macro rhinocos. So it has, so I'm going to read you the um, Merlin description. It's a crow that varies in size across its range, but it is a generally larger than a house crow with a relatively long dagger-like bill that is curved on the top. That sounds so badass. They're insanely terrifying. Um, they're entirely black with a very amount of glossiness, and they're scavengers. Um, they will steal food from other birds and often gang up and attack other birds, especially raptors. They occur in wide ranges of habitat, including woodlands, urban landscapes, uh, agricultural fields, and open shrub forests. Their call is far more harsher than the house crow, and they're also referred to as the jungle crow um, in Japan. So we saw these guys everywhere, and they are insanely terrifying, insanely loud. They're huge. And there are signs all over the place warning you about them. (laughs) That's awesome. They're like, watch out for crows. And they've got like a crow and then like an X over it. Like, like they don't like this crow. Aw, poor crows. No, but they're super cool birds. They're obviously like of the Corvus genus, so they're super smart. Um, but yeah, I really like that they're just like jungle crows and they bully up on everyone. Dude, I wonder if this is the crow that Alfred Hitchcock was inspired to make birds about. Oh my god. Yeah, it basically has a knife mouth. It's like two knives strapped together. It's dangerous. I 
I really want you to draw me a picture of that, by the way. <laughs> oh my god, can we point? I'm gonna draw you a knife mouth crow. Yeah, so we saw a lot of those. Um, and then we also saw um you know, like it was fun because we'd see something brightly colored and you know, Jake and I would write down the description. Um, unfortunately I don't have my diary in front of me. So we did see mostly like Eurasian, um, tree sparrows, which we see a lot of here. Um, and we saw pigeons too, um, which, you know, like in large cities, they have signs that you shouldn't feed the pigeons. And we saw like the best undercover pigeon, pigeon feeding. So we're like standing on a street corner and all of a sudden we see like all of these pigeons start to flock in one area and you see like this small person with a hood on and then like they're walking super fast and then all of a sudden out of like both of their pockets, a crap ton of bird seed fell out and they just kept walking and running. And then all these pigeons just swarmed on this bird seed and are like eating it. And I was just like, this lady or this man or whoever this person is secretly just fed these pigeons and did not want to get fined and I like am in love with this person because they're still feeding the pigeons who are like they're animals they need to eat like and the other birds will come in too and eat that bird seed it was freaking amazing thank you bird seed lady person bird bird seed samurai thank you for your contributions i say it's more like birdseed ninja because they were like secretly doing it oh they were like stealthy about it okay that's a good point that's a good point it was super fun though to kind of experience the birding on vacation even though there's a lot of birds that we also see here um a lot of ducks uh similar ducks that we see we did go to a zoo um we did see mandarin ducks which are gorgeous they're beautiful plumage very brightly colored purple and oranges that was really cool to see and we also saw a secretary bird so sec- secretary birds are native to Africa, and they are huge, and they're beautiful. They have these, like, wiry feathers that stick out of the back of their head and the most gigantic eyelashes of any creature I've ever seen. Dang. They're super cool birds. Um, so, yeah, we saw a ton of birds on vacation, and it was a really, really cool experience to kind of just bring that with you. Because it's really a good way to kind of get to know the environment that you're in, kind of experience some of the nature around you, even when you're traveling in a city. And it was a lot of fun to kind of like go back when we were exhausted and do a little identification. I mean, we we kind of did a terrible job of writing things down. Um, So mostly I remember seeing like the normal birds we'd see, sparrows, ducks, crows. Um, But that was still really interesting, especially the jungle crows. Like, they're the best. They're just the best. They're the best, most terrifying thing that you encountered. I know. I'm going to draw you their scissor mouth later. So there are a lot of different species that you could potentially see if you ever took a trip to Japan. Now we know. Cool. Reading Rainbow. Reading. Hey, speaking of songs that I like to sing. Yeah. Birds in the news. Birds in the news. Birds, 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 birds in the news. I tried to come in and I ruined it. <laughs> no, I was I was being a diva about it. All right. So uh, we have three articles that we saw in the news this week. Um, the first one, I literally, I, saw, I read the headline. And I was like, there's no way that this is a real thing. Um, but it's a real thing. Uh, there was a collision between a bird that is still being identified and an F-35 joint strike fighter that was classified as a Cla- or that was yeah classified as a class a 
by the military, meaning that this single bird collision did at least $2 million in property damage to this fighter jet. And the jet has been grounded until it can be repaired because the bird basically (laughs) just like completely annihilated this fighter jet. And I just like can't believe it. But this fighter bomber jet it costs $120 million. It's the most expensive jet in the entire world. And this bird flew, I don't know, somehow it collided with this plane. And the bird is absolutely dead. But the pilot is safe. And oddly, he was based in Japan. This was a Japanese uh, airbase, But I'm pretty sure it was a U.S. fighter jet. So the Department of Defense, they have this program called Partners in Flight, which is meant to help try to conserve the migratory and residential birds that exist on Department of Defense property. And it's estimated that in a year, the Air Force, the Navy, and the Marine Corps report up to 3,000 bird strikes or collisions every year. So that's like 3,000 birds that are probably dying, but... Even at that, like, they, they do take this super seri- seriously, uh, and the Department of Defense tries to mitigate these threats that they refer to as bird aircraft strike hazards, or BASH, which is a really accurate, accurate <laughs> Uh, sorry for my alliteration on the accurate acronym. Um, these 3,000 collisions every year, it's estimated to do in excess of $70 million of damage. The Department of Defense is trying to fight these by clearing out habitats or culling birds with firearms before they take off. Uh, and also using these, like, propane-powered sonic cannons to, like, scare birds away before takeoff. Can we go back to this really quick. So they're just killing birds so they don't hit the plane. Also, why are we flying these planes all the time? Does culling mean kill? Yeah. I thought culling meant to, like, freak out. Like, to scare away. Reduction of wild animal population by selective slaughter. Oh, shit. I don't know words. Culling is not good. (laughs) No. I guess I have to think like a bird for a second. And, like, would I rather... (laughs) (laughs) Would I rather die by plane or firearm? (laughs) Would I rather be, like, you know, sucked into an engine jet and just split into a thousand million different pieces? Would I rather die peacefully by gunfire? I don't know. I'm going with a more, like, reactionary bird who's like, I'm going to take this freaking plane down. This was a kamikaze bird. Yeah, screw you for being yep. in my sky. Like, yep. no. They probably called his mate. And they were, he's like, dude, fuck this. I'm going to go take down this fighter jet that, that killed my girl. And so that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Um, I like how the government, too, is not, like, shy about it at all. And they just call the acronym BASH. Like, that right. is, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, we bash into about 3,000 birds a year. We just yeah. bash right into them. But I really think that when you weigh, like, 3,000 birds die a year versus the government has to pay $75 million in damages. Like, I kind of feel like the birds won this one. Yeah, but still, like, dang, I'm, like, kind of pissed about it. I'm like, what are you doing? Why are those planes in the air all the time? I don't pretend to know what the military does at any point in my life. Yeah, it's probably best if our podcast doesn't get into speculating. (laughs) Let's not think too hard on this one. Let's just say that there is still a jet that is on the ground because of a single bird that flew into it. So um, why don't we jump into something that's, you know, also depressing. Another article that we've come across this week for Birds in the News. The British Antarctic Survey studies and monitors colonies of emperor penguins in Antarctica using high-res satellite imagery. 
One colony that they've been watching over the years is the Halle Bay Colony of Emperor Penguins, which is the second largest in the world, containing 5 to 9% of the global emperor penguin population. However, since sea ice breakup in October 2016, this has led to most to death of almost all the chicks at the site since. So every breeding year, due to the lack of sea ice and breakup of sea ice in the area, chicks that are bred do not survive, which is really, really sad to think about. So what they're hoping to see is that these penguins will wise up and move into a local colony nearby called the Dalton Lambton Penguin Colony. Um, numbers have started to been be on the rise in that colony, which is really great to see because that indicates that maybe there is some migration from the Haley Bay Colony to the Dotton Lambton Colony. However, just a highlight of the huge ecological impact and why we need to address climate change now is that emperor penguin numbers in ecological impact studies are set to fall dramatically, losing 50 to 70 percent of the global population before the intro of the century due to sea ice conditions. So this is just another one of those call-out articles where we're probably just ignoring it and just thinking happy thoughts, but our beautiful emperor penguins are being affected by climate change. So this is one area where we can focus on hopefully donating to the British Antarctic Survey or other organizations that help with conservations in Antarctica. What if all the penguins die before Morgan Freeman can do a sequel for March of the Penguins? Well, I mean... I don't think they're going to be able to ever CGI something in like that. Like CGI in Morgan Freeman? <laughs> no, the penguins. <laughs> Do you think the penguins will outlive Morgan Freeman? I mean, he's not that young. I think one penguin might outlive Morgan Freeman. In a zoo? Yeah, unfortunately in a zoo. Yeah, we're giving Morgan Freeman a really long lifetime. Though. Holy shit, he's 81. I think the penguins are going to outlast Morgan Freeman. No. Yeah, he's 81. He's probably going to live to be 150. Okay, then he'll give the penguins a run for their money. Now that we've gotten all the depressing news out of the way, uh, something that's sort of exciting and just to me really shows the resilience of the bird as a species is that in Aldabra? Aldabra. I'm going to go with Aldabra. Abracadabra. (laughs) Alda, Aldabra. Um... (laughs) Somebody can tweet at me later and tell me I messed it up. But anyways, the Aldabra white-throated rail, uh, it's a flightless bird that lives off of an atoll in the Indian Ocean, an atoll being like a ring-shaped reef. This bird, the white-throated rail, evolved into existence twice after going extinct. So basically what happened was there was a study that was done in the Zoological Journal of the Linnaean Society that shows that the this rail is an example of a rarely observed phenomenon in nature called iterative evolution. And basically what it means is that the same ancestral lineage produced two parallel offshoot species at different points in time. So essentially, this means that near identical species can pop up at multiple times in different eras and different locations, even if the past iterations of that same lineage have gone extinct. So they've already seen this example in sea cows and uh, anemones and sea turtles, but the birds, these, these different rail species, represent an unprecedented case study in terms of avian iterative evolution. What happened was about 136,000 years ago, there was this major flood and it swept the atoll underneath the water of the Indian Ocean. So all these birds, because they were flightless, went extinct. 36,000 years after that, 
the sea levels fell again and the atoll that that ring-shaped reef reappeared and more of these white-throated rails flew there from madagascar so over time they evolved out of their ability to fly a second time basically these two lineages of birds evolved to be flightless like thousands of years apart from each other i just think that's absolutely crazy that evolution sort of despite the fact that these birds had the same shared ancestor and then evolved out of that, that the same bird had that characteristic happen twice, like 36,000 years apart. So do you think it's something in the atoll that has them, like, losing their ability to fly or losing their need to fly? Have you seen Wally? right? You put people on a spaceship and they don't have to walk anywhere. We're just going to become blubber. So I really think that these atolls just didn't have a reason to fly. One of the things they mentioned in the article is that uh, the birds that came from Madagascar probably were um, going up against some kind of competition in their ecosystem there. And that caused them to leave Madagascar twice, which is kind of weird. But the fact that they both evolved to be flightless while they made it to the atoll, I guess that just means they didn't want to fly anymore. Yeah, that's crazy, though, to, like, for a bird to lose that evolutionary advantage of flying. Yeah. Maybe they don't like it. Maybe they're scared of heights. Yeah, maybe they all were just like, yeah, you know what? Flying, fuck flying. I don't want my kids to do it. I don't want my kids' kids to do it. Maybe, dude, maybe they saw all the fighter jets that we started building. They were like, no way, man. I don't want to get in that sky. They're like, fuck, did you see that giant bird? It destroyed him. It destroyed Billy. We can't ever fly again. And then they all became like, it's like the Moana, right? Like, everyone's like, we can't go in the ocean. There's going to be a Moana right-throated rail someday, and they'll be back in the sky. Yeah, um, good thing we had planes 36,000 years ago. That was a pretty cool story. Like, the evolutionary aspect, the fact that they came back, didn't want to fly, came back, flew, didn't want to fly. That was pretty interesting. Thanks, Mo. So, as we've mentioned before, we know that backyard birding is a blast, um, but it's also a lot of fun to learn about the feathered friends in your region. Being a local birder is an important way to get started acquainting yourself with common Europe birds you'll be able to see regularly. There's also something special about traveling to see new birds at different locations. We talked about my fun experience in Japan, but every place has its own unique mix of birds that are worth seeing in their element. So this weekend, as we mentioned earlier in this podcast, we are going to Point Pelee National Park in Ontario, Canada. Uh, We are super excited about this trip. We planned it like four, three months ago. I don't know. Yeah, it was winter and we decided, yeah, let's go to Canada. So that's what we decided to do. Um, And Point Pelee is a super popular migration hotspot. There have actually been over 390 bird species that have been recorded there, which is pretty astonishing. One of the reasons this is, is because Point Pelee is what is known as a migrant trap, which is way better than what that sounds like. Can we play this Star Wars thing? It's a trap. (laughs) I don't know if we have the copyright to play Star Wars. Oh, we definitely don't, but we could still play it. Oh, I like, because no one listens to our podcast. Dude, we could, we could play this Star Wars movie on this podcast and no one would know. <laughs> well, well, let me explain what migrant traps are so that we don't sound racist. So migrant traps attract a wide diversity of species uh, in a very small area. 
And Point Pelee is considered a migrant trap for migration birds because it's located on a lot of major migratory flyways. Specifically, given its region on the north shore of Lake Erie, it's one of the first points of land that spring migrant birds reach in the pre-dawn hours when they cross Lake Erie at night. So it's just basically the first spot that they see to land and therefore they just like decide to hang out and rest for a little bit after flying across the lake. Point Pelee is known for its migrating seabirds and songbirds. So there have been 42 of the 55 regularly occurring warbler species in North America, and they have been recorded at Point Pelee. So 42 out of 55, that's like insane. I'd take that score on an exam. That's like 76%. I don't know if I would take that score. Dude, if I took it and, and okay, let's say organic chem, taking it. I was going to say statistics, so. Take it. I think I did take that. Uh, anyways, I just think that's cool, and Point Pelee sounds like it's going to be off the hook. Yeah, so since this is our first bird-focused trip, we wanted to share some of our tips for planning a birding trip. So what I would give as a first tip is, you know, you booked your trip, you're super pumped to go, it's going to be a great time. Triple check your gear before you leave. Make sure you have your binoculars, your chosen field guidebook, whether that's electronically available on your phone or it's an actual book you're bringing, Um, If you are into taking photos, make sure you bring extra batteries and charge your camera and make sure all of your equipment is working properly so you can get those great shots that you're looking for. We also suggest that you make a checklist, not only a checklist for what you're going to bring, but also what kind of birds you might see and what you want to see. So this can help you learn more about the birds in advance so you'll be more familiar with them and you can easily find them. So for instance, if you want to see one of the 44 different warbler species, you maybe you want to check out where they hang out. Um, are they more of a field bird? Are they more of a water bird? Um, you can also make note of their behavior. For instance, kinglets like to hop and flit around a lot while foraging, but American robins would stay stationary on the ground. So this is a good way where you whether you can look up to the sky or look down to find the birds that you're looking for. So these are just a couple of them. Um, Mo, do you have any tips for how we've been planning? Yeah, I just kind of go back to that behavior thing. That's been really beneficial. I went birding today and I was able to identify a lot of warblers. Uh, well, I wasn't able to identify them because there were, I was so overwhelmed. There were so many birds. I didn't know what to do. I was panicking. Uh, I basically stood under the same four trees for 45 minutes. I, I ran after a hummingbird because I'd never seen a hummingbird before in Lincoln Park. So it was like a big deal. But I knew that they were warblers because I knew what their beak looked like. So that's how I knew, like, okay, I don't know what this bird is, but I know it's a warbler, so I'm going to, like, take some notes. I'm going to, like, go look this up later. So there's a lot you can do with um, sort of doing a little bit of advanced research into the birds you're going to see in your area. And there's a lot of local resources that you'll likely be able to find as it relates to the place that you might be going. So Point Pelee is a like a hot spot, like I mentioned. So there are a lot of resources around it. It's It's helpful because it helps you get a sense of during the time that you're going to be there, what can you expect to see? Folks over at Cornell, they have this awesome research tool called BirdCast, which allows you to see the maps of different birds at different seasons, which can be helpful to kind of figuring out where birds might be, if they're going to be near you, or if they're migrating to kind of see what's around. Or you can even just do a simple Google search. And I did a couple of Google searches earlier this week and found some awesome resources specifically as it relates to mailing lists. So we signed up for the Ontario Birds mailing list. This list 
is updated by the Festival of Birds Hike Leaders, which is a huge group that's present in Point Pelee, especially during the Festival of Birds in May there. And what they do is they send the emails out. You can choose to either have them done as daily digests or you can be notified as soon as something is spotted. During key times, especially the spring or fall migration seasons, this collective force of the birding community is really valuable. We also found a couple sites discussing the common birds that we're likely to see at Point Pelee. We started familiarizing ourselves with these birds so we can spend less time IDing them in the field and more time enjoying the presence of the birds. I'm speaking about reaching out to get more information. I think it would also be really cool if you reach out to local birders or birding organizations for hot tips. So if you're going to a place that is very well known for being a bird watching spot, you can reach out to the organization there and ask about what are the best trails, what time of day is the best to go out. A lot of times, like the Point Pelee, will have information on their website. So we actually were able to garner a lot of information like Mo mentioned. And then you can also pair up with experienced birders in a given region. You can connect with them on social media. Um, and a lot of times, if you just get out there and start birding, you're going to meet other birders. And it's going to become a great day. And you're all going to hang out. And it's going to be an amazing time. But you'll also probably want to bring snacks because you don't want to be hangry when you're hanging out with other cool birders and watching birds. And birding is harder than it looks. It's basically like kind of like hiking all day. So you're going to get hungry. And pick up your trash. Don't be a filthy animal. But make sure that you bring, like, really good snacks. Like, I'm probably going to bring Japanese Kit Kats for us to eat. That is so bougie. Yeah, I know. That's, like, the bougiest thing I've ever heard. Are they the matcha ones? Uh, No, they are red bean, sake, and butter. Butter Kit Kat? What is that? It's delicious. That's what it is. Does it taste like butter? It tastes like... Or is it made with butter? No, it's supposed to taste like butter. And it kind of does, but it's also really, really good. I mean, butter is good. Butter is good. So we're going to be bougie. People want to be our friends. We're going to be totally sugared up on this birding trip. Hell yeah! How else do you think I make it through a day? I mean, I'm definitely going to crash. But one way you can avoid crashing... Uh, even though most birds come out at dawn and dusk, uh, not necessarily all birds will do that. So it might help if you are able to look at birds in advance and kind of see what birds you're looking for and what times of day they're active. It might be beneficial to split up your day maybe into two sessions instead of going all day for like a marathon birding session. You might appreciate that little gap in your birding if you're able to take a pause and then go back out for a second time. The mailing lists are especially helpful in tracking what birds are where on a given day so that that way you can leave where you are and maybe go to like a nearby area or something if you get a notification about a specific sighting that you really want to see. So those are our tips on planning a trip that is focused around birding. Uh, We are super excited to share with you in our upcoming episodes our actual trip to Point Pelee. All of the birds that we've seen, we're planning on interacting with other birders. Dude, I'm so excited to talk to other birders. Oh my gosh, we're going to, we're probably going to be really annoyed. Hey, hey, you want to talk? You want to talk about the birds? You want to talk to us about the birds? Well, look, here's the thing though. We're going the week after peak migration season is specifically like targeted for Point Pelee. So there's a good chance that we're going to see like five birds. I think that we're going to need to talk to other people to commiserate. Yeah, I mean, the people who missed that weekend, I mean, it sucks we can't go this weekend, but life happens. It's going to be kind of nuts because we're going to be there Memorial Day weekend, but it's in Canada. Like, we're going to be there on a Sunday night. It's unlikely there are going to be many other people at this park. So we're going to have the whole park to ourselves. 
It's going to be good, though. But I think that's also a good point to make is that it may be a birding trip that's not to a place that's super popular. So it might be nice to connect with other birders who are there not on, like, you know, Saturday morning when the place is hustling and bustling. So I think it'll be good. And we get to stay in an A-frame yurt, basically, you and me, and six bunk beds. <laughs> Wait, there are six bunk beds? They, I don't know. They, like, house colonies at this park. I don't understand. But, like, we have six bunk beds just between you and me. Maybe it's, like, six bunks? So three bunk beds? I am sleeping in a different one. I, I, I don't know. I'm just going to hang out in all of them. The problem is that whenever I'm on the top bunk, I always have to wake up in the middle of the night and go pee. But I don't know if I like being on the bottom bunk. Yeah. Okay. So here's here you got the creep factor. One bottom bunk, like easily murdered. Just get taken out and you're on the floor. Top bunk though, if you fall out, <laughs> you fall onto the floor and then you die. So that's like double suck. But because we have six freaking bunk beds, you can sleep on the bottom of any one of them. Dude, maybe we should bring some blow up dolls to set up the other bunks so that way when the murderer comes in, they won't know which one's a real body at first. That'll give us time to plan our escape. Okay. <laughs> okay. We're going to show up at a national park with four blow up dolls and they're going to be like, I'm sorry, you can't stay here. Stage them outside of the A frame when we're not there so that way it looks like there's someone still home. Yes, with like hats and sunglasses and like lawn chairs. Yeah, and just sitting on the porch, like, having a good old freaking time. Well, obviously, chain them down so they don't blow away. But, um, yeah, I think I'm going to do a really quick uh, jump on Amazon and uh, buy a couple of those bad boys. Um, That's going to screw up your Amazon algorithm so badly. So excited for what Amazon suggests to me. Do you think we should get two men and two girls, or is it an all-girls weekend? Oh, no, if it's all-girls, we're definitely a target. Oh, yeah, that's true. But if they're all men, then we look like we're sex slaves. <laughs> Six girls on a trip is very intimidating, I feel like. Especially if four of them are really tall blondes. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know I'd have to go for the, like the extra height blow-up dolls. I just imagine us taping all of our hands together and sitting around a fire. Okay, I'm not letting you bring tape on this trip. That's what I just okay. decided. I'm glad that you didn't outlaw the blow-up dolls. You just said no tape. <laughs> Do you think birds would be attracted to blow-up dolls? Oh. oh. I mean, like, not in a sexual way, but, like, they're semi-shiny. Are the blow-up dolls shiny? I don't know if I can answer that question. Do you think other birders would talk to us if I wore one in a backpack? You're going to scare all the birds away with your blow-up doll. All right, I decided the birds don't like blow-up dolls, and so you're not allowed to bring them out on the hike, and we're just going to have to stage them back at camp so that nobody hides in our A-frame tent while we're gone and then murders us once we're asleep. Okay, that's a really good point. I think we should set it up, though. Like, they're really vigilant. Like, they're reading. They're not drinking. And they're just listening to Rush Limbaugh for five hours. Oh my god, we're not bringing those kind of blow-up dolls. But no one would want to talk to them. That's the whole point. True, yes. They'll be like, screw that campsite. I'm staying far away. Yeah, they're going to be like, fuck that place. So, we'll be in Point Peeling, and you can tune in with our adventures live. You can follow along our Instagram stories at birdshit.com. 
podcast on Instagram. Or if you want to shoot us an email and meet up with us, hopefully you're not a murderer and please don't bring a blow up doll. Uh, but you can email us at hellobirdshit at gmail.com if you want to reach out and try to meet up in Point Pelee. We really hope that you uh, keep your eyes to the sky, see some great birds this weekend. And we look forward to hearing more about our adventures in Point Pelee. Bye. Bye.